Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. Well, for this episode in particular, I hope you've got a big giant cup of coffee ready to go because my guest, Andrea Lamar, is a huge coffee lover, same as me. So we would very rarely start the day with uh, without a cup of the good stuff in our hand. Maybe we're even onto our second or maybe a third, but I'm sure none of you can relate to that. So I just want to introduce you to Andrea, whose bio, by the way, had me really giggling, and this tells you a lot about Andrea. So Andrea is a researcher, writer, speaker, and aspiring filmmaker from Canada, but she's currently living in Auckland, New Zealand. She's currently working at Massey University as a lecturer in critical health psychology. She obtained her PhD in 2018 at the University of Guelph, where she uses qualitative and arts-based approaches to explore eating disorder recoveries from the perspectives of people in recovery and their chosen supporters. In her spare time, she watches really bad TV, reads young adult fiction and spends entirely too much time on Twitter. And can I just say, I completely agree with that. I am so not a Twitter fan, but Andrea just goes bananas on Twitter. She is a total champion at that particular platform and there's a lot to learn there. So apparently Andrea can also be found hiking with her husband or attending way too many conferences. And I must say, this is originally how I got to know Andrea because what she would so generously do is provide uh, lots of summaries of all the conferences that she attended. She would tweet like an absolute demon. I don't really know how anybody can, how their fingers can move that quickly. But I tell you what, Andrea, she's got skills. She's got many, many skills and, and twittering at very high speeds is uh, is definitely one of them. So it was a great pleasure to have Andrea as my guest on the podcast. Uh, she is going to be one of my first non dietitian guests um, that I'm so excited to be introducing you to in 2020. It's not going to be like a dietitian, not dietitian, dietitian, not, not dietitian. I'm really not that organized. But what I have decided this year is to really expand uh, the repertoire of people who I'd really like to introduce you to. People who are doing really incredible work in perhaps our shared fields and people whose work can really inform the, the kind of care and the, and the presence that we're aiming to provide for our clients, groups and communities. So here we, we talk about, um, gosh, lots of, <laughs> lots of really interesting things, including um, Andrea's really interesting professional pathway and how she has come to live in New Zealand, um, how she has come to name eating disorder recoveries in the plural. And we towards the end there, you'll hear us really dig down into how Andrea has um, developed not only the research, but really the understanding to be uh, broadening our, our capacity 
to view people's recoveries as a plural rather than kind of one version of recovery, which I, I really appreciated that because it's something that I've been wrestling with for, for quite a number of years. And it's unsurprising that Andrea had some clues as to where we might turn to find some respite from some of these wrestling ideas that we all have. Here we also talk about the problematic systems which lie within eating disorder treatment and which hinders access and inclusivity for people in a, a wide variety of bodies. Um, we talk about how ongoing self-monitoring self and how we can be curious about our own experiences can help us tune into our biases and can support us to become better health professionals as we, as we continue learning together. We also talk about when it's helpful to speak about our own, our own experiences and perhaps when it's not as helpful and why lifting the voices and experiences of those most marginalised doesn't necessarily make our own experience less valid. So um, one of my favourite parts is when we talked about the importance of working from a social justice, culturally appropriate trauma-based care lens to improve um, societal systems for all people and most notably those who experience oppression and marginalization. So without kind of going on and on and on about the content of what we talked about, I really hope you enjoy this episode. And if you're keen to hear more episodes, you can find all episodes at uh, the Mindful Dietitian website, which is simply www.themindfuldietitian.com.au forward slash podcast and you can find all episodes there uh, i have also i know i just can't believe that it's actually taken me this long to figure out that all my episodes didn't automatically go up onto spotify which is my favorite platform to listen uh, to podcasts from and i just realized that i couldn't find it and then i wondered why i couldn't find it and it's because i needed to actually like connect it <laughs> Who would have thought, hey? Yeah, it's so typical of me to be like, oh yeah, it'll just go up across platforms and I'll figure it out. And and then it wasn't there. And anyway, so I kind of have figured it out and we are now on Spotify, which is actually really exciting because the platform is, you know, it's super cool in so many ways. There's so many ways you can you can use across different, um, you know, podca podcast platforms. Uh, what else is in store? My gosh, 2020 is huge. So rather than me rabbiting on about it here, go head over to the website. There's tons of my goodness, events. I've got a super exciting collaboration with EDRD Pro uh, coming up with uh, Sumner Brooks, who is the director of EDRD Pro um, on acceptance and commitment therapy training for dietitians. So I'm super pumped about that. Uh, please join us in our Facebook group where today we talked about what you would be if you weren't a dietitian and what you feel like saying as your profession when somebody says, what do you do for work? And this was sparked by a conversation I had actually a number of years ago with our colleague Dana Sturtevant, who was a past podcast guest. And she said, oh, I think we were just talking about the frustrations of um, when we say to people, you know, we're a dietitian. And then uh, almost it almost just slips out of my mouth, but but not, not a dietitian who tells people what to eat. You know, so I guess I was joking with Dana and, and just saying, I'm just, right, that's it. I'm just going to say I'm a florist. Anyway, we laughed about that. And so I put up a, a post today in our closed Facebook group, which is called The Mindful Dietitian. Surprise, surprise. And the array of responses that people had were absolutely hilarious. I have loved reading through them. So I just want to share some with you. Okay, so we've got uh, Cake Decorator. We've got Chef Leslie Schilling, my recent 
a recent guest wants to be a writer. Well, duh, she already is an amazing writer. But then she writes Hiking Guide. Unsurprising. The one that had me giggling was Aaron Flores, again, a past uh, podcast interviewee. And he says, an owner of a breakfast cafe that specializes in eggs all sorts of ways. It would be called, quote unquote, oof, ah. And in case I haven't made that clear, oof is spelt O-E-U-F, as in the French word for egg. I know I've just totally spoiled the joke, but, you know, I think Aaron's hilarious, so I really appreciated that. Uh, Maria Paredes says she would love to be a professional leisureite, and is that an option? Uh, I also shared the same one as Imogen Patton, who said travel photographer. Hello, that's my dream profession. Um, and Monica Segal, who is my colleague from dance and performance nutrition, she dreams of resurrecting her dance career. This is just hilarious. So people are saying party planner, cake decorator. Um, and another one of my absolute faves um, is from our friend Christ Christy Fazio, who is a huge Disney fan. And her dream would be to be a Disney guide. So what she would do is she would pick up your little ones, or maybe not so little ones, from your from your apartment or wherever wherever you're staying. And then she would be so her role would be Disney nanny. And um, if you don't want the Disney experience, but you don't want to uh, rob your children of that, Christy says, I will take your kids around the park and then drop them back at your hotel at 5pm. And then she adds, and then I'd go back into the park on your dime and enjoy myself. So <laughs> I'm sure I'm not alone in saying, hey, Christy, do you want somebody to join you? All right. So with that being said, uh, you know, the Mindful Dietitian Facebook group is a place where we where we equally have as much fun as well as getting feisty about diet culture. That's something else that we love to do in the Facebook group. So I'm going to hand this over to uh, the amazing conversation that I had with Andrea Lamar recently. And I look forward to seeing you either, either live in person, maybe at the International Congress of Eating Disorders coming up in June, maybe some training or maybe online um, or somewhere about in this world. All right, then take care. Bye. Hello, Andrea, and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I squeaked my way in as a non-dietitian. <laughs> you did, and I am so thrilled for you. So we're going to be switching it up a little bit in 2020, and um, you've kind of given me this beautiful idea of, you know, um, of inviting some people who are not dietitians, but whose whose voices and experiences are really core and, and just so valuable to the work that we do. So I am super thrilled. This can be our test run. How's that? So you, Sounds no pressure. <laughs> I'm into it. Hopefully it goes well then. Yeah, no pressure. So, Andrew, you've had such an interesting pathway to where you are now. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, um, yeah, what's what's brought you to where you are now? Yeah, for sure. So I am a rogue non-dietitian on a dietitian podcast, and I'm also a rogue Canadian living in New Zealand. Um, and how did I get here? So I started um, off... Uh, from the perspective of lived experience. So I experienced disordered eating and what ended up being labeled as an eating disorder when I was in high school and then again when I was in early university. So I ended up seeking day hospital treatment, was in treatment for eight months, and then I got out of treatment, thought, you know, I'm fully recovered, we'll call this a day, we'll go on, we'll do 
the rest of university and then kind of carry on with my life. I thought I would become a journalist. So I really liked writing. I was like, okay, I'm going to become a journalist. And then in my fourth year of university, I was asked to do a research proposal for a qualitative research project. And I somehow stumbled upon an article that said something about how eating disorders, um, there are barriers to access to care. And I had experienced some of those barriers um, when I was seeking treatment. So I did find that there was a really long wait list. Um, I found that, you know, once I got to treatment, it was very rigid and rule bound, but I didn't think too much about it. And when I encountered this article, it was the first time that I really started thinking about the privilege that I really embodied and how that had enabled me to actually access and be quote unquote successful in my care. So I am a white woman. I was quite young at the time that I was diagnosed. I live in a thinner body. Um, it was easy for people to kind of understand that I might be experiencing um, disordered eating or an eating disorder. So accessing treatment for me was primarily limited by just the weight as opposed to other things. So I was able to move home and live with my mom. So the socioeconomic thing was fine. Um, you know, nobody questioned me on the basis of my sexuality or the way that I was presenting to the world. So I got treatment, but when I read this article, I was like, wait a minute, there are a lot of people who aren't getting treatment. And if they are getting to treatment, they're not getting the type of treatment that they deserve um, and that meets them where they are. And so that was kind of the beginning spark toward what would end up being my master's and my PhD, where I wanted to really understand people's lived experiences of eating disorders and particularly recovery. Because I also recognize that when I call myself recovered, people believe me because of the body that I live in. So again, all of those privileges make it easy for people to be like, yes, absolutely, that girl's recovered. We can listen to her. She's an expert over her own experience. But that's not the type of reception that everybody gets. Um, and I wanted to know a little bit more about why. And I wanted to understand um, people's complex relational embodied lives, um, as opposed to just seeing people as, you know, straightforward before and after um, versions of themselves. And so that was kind of the spark that lit the match. And then I, you know, did my master's on eating disorder recovery. I ended up using arts-based approaches and making films with people really getting to know my participants. And then for my PhD, I did another study on eating disorder recovery, again, with some arts-based approaches and qualitative approaches. And I also spoke to people that they selected um, as supporters in their recoveries. So long story short, I guess, short-ish, um, I ended up uh, doing my PhD, got my PhD in 2018, did a postdoc in something completely unrelated, and then a year later ended up uh, getting a job here in New Zealand at Massey University as a lecturer in critical health psychology. So now I get to do more work like this and uh, hopefully even broaden beyond what I was able to do during my PhD. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting how, you know, your own lived experience, your own personal experience, you know, gave you one lens of recovery. And then you, you know, you were really curious and keen to learn about how um, people have different experiences of recovery. So that is, that's incredibly interesting. And I'm, I'm guessing that there were more than a few episodes of maybe frustration there as you began to kind of peel back the layers of the eating disorder recovery space. Onion, do, do you mind speaking a little bit to that? Yeah, for sure. So I think um, I was speaking with a student about this the other day, and I think 
Sometimes people expect that when you do research on something that you've experienced, you might feel triggered personally, but I didn't find myself triggered personally. I just found myself kind of angry <laughs> to reflect mm -hmm. on the care that I'd received. Not to say that they weren't caring clinicians because they were, and I think that's really important and I wanna make that clear right from the get-go, is that the people who treated me were wonderful people. The systems that they were working within are problematic systems. And so that is really where I want my work to speak to. But when I started looking at my own experience as well as what exists in the literature, I just found definitions of recovery to be really, really narrow. So definitions of recovery, um, I think one of the most problematic things, and I've, I've probably mentioned this in other work that I've done before, but one of the most problematic things is that there are studies out there that will define recovery between a BMI of 20 and 24. And so that is obviously a problem because people exist in all sorts of different bodies who get eating disorders and people recover into all sorts of different bodies and are still recovered. So there's no kind of like magic number over which when you cross it, you're no longer recovered. And so there's this kind of normativity that's being replicated in the way that we talk about eating disorders. So only certain bodies are really quote unquote allowed to recover. Um, also, another thing that really frustrated me was that too often I would find that the only measures being used to define recovery were kind of these quantitative standardized questionnaires. And these questionnaires can have practical utility for sure in terms of determining, you know, where somebody might be out there eating, um, you know, how far along they might be from where they began. Um, you can do some interesting work with quantitative questionnaires, but the questionnaires aren't perfect and they don't capture all aspects of experience. And there's actually been some recent research that's come out to say that people can have quite a high quality of life sometimes, but not be scoring as you might expect on those questionnaires. So recovery is wrapped up in a lot more than kind of one number that you might get on a quantitative scale. So that was another thing that frustrated me. And then also just the kind of whiteness and able-bodiedness and, um, you know, heterosexuality and, you know, all of these different isms um, around the way that recovery is represented and understood. So, you know, in popular discourse, you only get certain recovery stories welcomed in. So you only really have room in like a media story for like a white woman's experience. And yes, things are broadening up for sure, but I don't really see spaces really, really in a meaningful way being opened up to different versions of reality in a way that would actually be safe. And usually the response is like, oh, well, people need to tell their stories. And that's all well and fine to say that. But if the space isn't safe for them to say that, and they're going to be risking like all kinds of hate, from coming forward about their experiences, then you can't just really just say, oh, go tell your recovery story because the room doesn't exist either in the research literature or in kind of media. And people are trying to change this. So I don't wanna come off as I'm the only one who's trying to change this because people are doing awesome work. But there's still this predominance of studies on anorexia, of studies on young white girls, of studies on, that represent recovery as only something that someone who's been thin can experience or that stays thin can experience. Um, and I really want to see stuff that kind of messes up that narrative and, and really encourages us to understand the full spectrum of humanity as it might be in recovery. Yeah, it's really, it's actually really interesting that you're talking about this kind of, um, what I'm observing is almost this juxtaposition at the moment, and that is that a majority of eating disorder organizations, communities, groups, and even individuals are really elevating this, um, this kind of core message of anybody in anybody 
can experience an eating disorder. Anybody in anybody can also experience recovery from an eating disorder. So I am, particularly in more recent years, noticing this very dominant message. And yet that what I'm talking about in terms of juxtaposition um, or Maybe it's more irony. I'm not too sure. I think it's probably juxtaposition more, more so. Um, I'll have to go Google it. Um, is that then on the other hand, there is still this very dominant sense of, that we forget that. Like people go, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. But then when somebody, for example, goes for an assessment with a doctor or they go and they might be seeking um, um, weight loss services from a dietitian, for example. And we seem to forget this when it comes to the person sitting in front of us. It's almost, mm-hmm. it's a kind of a, it feels like a bit of a funny space at the moment where people are like, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know, I know that. But then the human element when you, it, it's almost like our internalized fat phobia, maybe our internalized transphobia, homophobia, or all this kind of, these um, isms and phobias that that exist within within all of us and and the biases that exist within all of us um they become a they they dominate when it comes to the human whereas when Mm -hmm. you're looking at you know maybe a public health message or eating disorders awareness week everyone's like right on board with that stuff so i'm Mm -hmm. so curious to hear your thoughts about how we can continue to to really collectively um, you know, cut through some of this, the harder, deeper work that we need to be doing as health professionals. Totally. I mean, I think the way that I usually see it is it's kind of a lip service being paid without a continued kind of constant follow through and, and constant self monitoring in a way, like not in a surveillance way, but in like a, just checking in with ourselves about our, our biases that we hold, because we all do hold biases. Like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I don't have biases because I do. And I think that when we pretend that we don't, we almost do that, like, I don't see color thing, um, where we pretend that, you know, we don't see color, this doesn't matter to us, that actually does a disservice to actually doing the work of, for instance, understanding the way that I think it was Sonia Renee Taylor, who says, like, where does racism live within you you know like where does that live within you not are you racist but where is that within you Um, because we all have these problematic points of view that we hold within us because of the way that we've been socialized and the way that we're brought up in this world and who we are so it it's futile in a way to pretend that that isn't happening um, because it actually harms when we say oh yeah 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 of course I'm not I'm not racist I'm not sizist I'm not classist like it's not really enough to just say that (laughs) um you need to be doing the work on yourself and I feel like I'm constantly like asking myself like even you know when do I talk about my own lived experience and when do I not and I think that's a that's a ground that I've really been investigating a lot lately is when is it helpful for me as a thin white woman to talk about my lived experience and when is it not um and what can I do to you know meaningfully learn from and engage from people who have different experiences than mine um and what can I do to make sure that I'm not doing this kind of weird also like altruistic like I'm gonna lift up your voice because that's not really like what it is either um I think it's making me think a lot about how I design my studies and who's involved in consulting on designing studies. It's making me think when I do a presentation about social justice, like, you know, how can I, you know, 
pay somebody to peer review this for me? Or, you know, how can I meaningfully engage with people whose experiences might be a lot tougher than mine um, in the world and in recovery spaces and in eating disorder spaces in general? And I think it does involve a deeper and more intentional look um, and not just paying lip service. And I'm aware of the times in the past when I have just paid lip service. And so I don't want to, you know, sit here and pretend like I'm some perfect expert on how to meaningfully engage with different lived experiences because I'm not. And I've definitely replicated problematic discourses in the past. And I think hopefully I'm learning from those and trying to do better. Um, but I think it's, it's hard learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it involves a lot of, you know, honesty with ourselves about our own areas where we could really do some improving absolutely i also wonder if in the work that is that we are invited into in terms of understanding the experiences of others and more notably the experiences of others that are most marginalized i wonder whether because eating disorders has kind of been not well funded kind of not well attended to in in broader kind of medical and health and well-being research uh services have been really lacking across the board for for everybody let alone those who uh, have less capacity or have the least access or have the least opportunity um i wonder if in a way that there are people who feel like well if i'm putting my energy into you know uh, lifting up those who have less opportunity in a way they feel invalidated and Mm. and that kind of it it kind of butts up against this more global sense that man everybody needs more support so that I don't know I, I I think we've been kind of in this bun fight for so many years that we might forget who we're fighting for in a way I think that's a I think that's a really important point. And I think that is an argument that's often, you know, leveled against the type of work that does like a deep interrogation of, you know, social justice praxis. And I think there's a kind of defensiveness that can come out where it's like, oh, but I'm a, you know, I'm a thin white person and I still struggled. And and I think nobody's saying that that isn't the case. And and I certainly struggled. It was hell. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to pretend like it wasn't really, really crappy. Um, and I think that working for, in the name of, you know, social justice and culturally informed practice and trauma-informed care and access for those who don't get access, hopefully that work will work for everyone. Um, because people in positions of privilege benefit from society and the way that society is. But you're right. And, and I think eating disorders in general have been you know, sidelined from public health agendas, they've been sidelined from, you know, even mental health treatment spaces. And I think the work needs to be done on on so many different levels, Um, on policy levels in particular. um, I know that, like, we're just not really brought to the table when it comes to mental health in general. And sometimes the only thing that'll be listened to there is like kind of a more normative experience or kind of that place that will invoke like a certain fear reaction, which is terrible that that's what gets traction. Like, Oh, that's what I want to work to change is it's like, we, we shouldn't need to show a picture of an emaciated person in order for people to take us seriously. Um, you know, we shouldn't need to say that eating disorders like kill to be taken seriously. Like, Mm -hmm. 
but there are certain things that you know are kind of strategic like policy things it's really tricky though because in lifting up voices that are from privileged folks we ignore marginalized voices but i think there's a real defensiveness that can come in when when we you know say and mean it you need to sort of happen to everyone people are like oh but they happened to me and i do fit that picture does that mean my story isn't valid absolutely not your story is completely valid it's your story it's just what purchase does that story hold in the broader array of stories that are told mm. i don't know if that made sense i felt it like totally i went on a bit sense. of a ramble no yeah. not at all no it's it's so funny when we when we hear our own voice in our own head i feel like that all the time too i'm like I feel like I went round in a circle and I'm not sure I closed that circle. So yeah. <laughs> here we are. <laughs> and, and you know what, that's the great thing about having, um, you know, essentially, cause you and I are just sitting here having a conversation really. It just so happens that we're recording the conversation. It just so happens that I'm going to press publish and that if people feel so interested in the conversation that we're having, then so be it. <laughs> <laughs> It's essentially how I see podcasting anyway. Know, it's kind been of... a while since I've been on one. <laughs> yeah, it's like eavesdropping. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Maybe that's a way to make myself feel better that, you know, that we kind of go uh, in a million different directions and, and that that is okay as well. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I I'm so interested. Something that you said really, um, you know, drew my attention to uh, – um, uh, what I'm noticing and have been noticing this for quite a number of years now in, in recovery spaces is that, is that people um, often feel pressure, especially once they do become more well, to then go and help others mm -hmm. in their own recovery. And um, I've actually never had a conversation with somebody about this. And it's just something you said before, I was like, oh, that's actually really interesting. You know, I wonder what it is about this particular experience, which draws people in to then want to go and help others. And mm -hmm. then what does, um, particularly, I'm thinking about what does that mean in terms of professions that people choose? I, and and with that, I, I, I mean that completely neutrally, completely non-judgmentally and with no agenda, but just a... I'm interested in that. I find that so interesting. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's a great question. And I think, um, you know, when I did my PhD research, um, I spoke with quite a lot of people. Well, I mean, for a qualitative study, it was like 20 people in recovery, which is small. So keep that in mind. Um, but I think what interested me was that about half, like I don't do numbers, but let's say about half of the people really felt like they wanted to, you know, do the work of getting the word out there and really helping other people. And everybody who participated to a certain extent wanted to help out because they were participating in research. And, and part of the reason they articulated for wanting to do that was to help people. But there were quite a few people who also said that like, in their own lives, like beyond the context of research, like they just didn't really talk about it that much because they wanted to kind of distance themselves from that. And for them, a really important part of recovery was really just like moving into other things that interested them. But I, there was a, you know, a big contingent of people who were wanting to help other people and, and do that either through their career or through advocacy work or whatever the case might be. And I do think that there's this interesting I don't want to call it an imperative because I don't think that everybody feels it, but there is this real call to always share your story and always use your story to help other people to get involved in, you know, peer mentoring. And I, I think peer mentoring is amazing and wonderful. And, you know, I think people going into the field with a lived experience history is amazing as well. 
but I don't think it should be required by any means. Um, and I think that, you know, it's interesting to look at how it almost feels like it's required to like, this has been your experience, therefore it's like the most interesting thing about you or whatever the case might be. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's taken some time in some ways to kind of distance myself from this being the only thing that I can talk about or even to decent, try to decenter my own story sometimes because it isn't the most important thing about me. Um, and I think, I actually think when like conversations emerge, which listeners might have heard about where, you know, people get, you know, they don't want people with lived experience to be clinicians. And I find those conversations can get a little bit offensive sometimes because it assumes that the most important thing about the person is the fact that they experienced an eating disorder um, and that that is always going to color every experience in their life. And sure, it does have an impact because all of our experiences have an impact on who we are as people, but it has an impact and other things that have happened to us also have an impact. Um, and I think, you know, bringing it back to social justice, I think, you know, experiences of racism and sizeism and ableism also have an impact on who we are in the world. And those also don't necessarily define everything. And yeah, so we're complex people, basically. Um, but I do think there's a call to simultaneously always be helping people, but also like somehow not be helping people in certain ways. That was a weird, weird way of phrasing it. But I think there can be kind of tensions around you know who's able to do what work and yeah yeah I, I've I've noticed some especially over the past 12 months you know when colleagues and friends of ours have become quite open with their own mental health experiences whilst actually you know still practicing mm -hmm. and it's been a bit divisive hasn't it you know that people um, have been really quite judgmental unfortunately and uh, I'm not sure if you saw it, but I, I wanted to point people to um, the work of Rachel Milner, who mm -hmm. does a lot of advocacy work and speaks openly about her own mental health experiences, um, ongoing mental health experiences, um, as well as being an incredibly skilled, knowledgeable, wise, insightful psychologist herself. Mm -hmm. um, so I what I really like about the way Rachel writes is it's not only really, she's very clear in her, her writing and, and informed, but also it's a, it's an invitation to us to examine the attitudes that we hold both towards ourselves, towards each other, towards communities and groups and, and how that really informs the work that we do. Mm -hmm. um, and one of her most recent posts, which I found fascinating, and I actually have read it a number of times because, you know, when somebody really smart, and I'm going to include you in this, Andrea, is they write something and you actually have to read it a number of times <laughs> because it's like, okay, first of all, I'm not sure what that word means. And, and then second of all, this is just really compelling mm -hmm. and there are, there are things in here that I maybe hadn't joined the dots about and there's something here that I really need to unpack, you know, and whether that's in therapy or supervision or over coffee or a glass of wine with a colleague or a friend, you know, however we choose to unpack that, um, that there's something meaningful here. And what she, in one of these posts specifically, she really invited us to think about, well, how do we de define recovery? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, I know. How do we define recovery? If we are saying that health professionals, quote unquote, should be recovered, and let's just um, 
you know, we can limit this to eating disorder recovery, let alone all other kinds of um, mental health experiences that come and go for many, many of us. Um, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, yes, depression is something you just say goodbye to and never to be seen again or anxiety or OCD or so many things that pop up for so many of us who are, you know, um, self-described health and helping professionals, I suppose. Um, oh, that was more of a statement than a question, but... <laughs> No, I definitely, I mean, I think about this constantly. Um, <laughs> I like to joke that, you know, I wrote a total of 530 word pages on, um, you know, what is recovery? Like, essentially, that was the question of my master's and my PhD, and I don't know the answer. Um, the, the, closest I can, <laughs> the closest I can get is that recovery is life. Mm. Uh, so I ended up doing my PhD on the meaning of life, which is, oh my uh, God, that's a massive, <laughs> you know, it's questionable. Um, <laughs> but it was fascinating. And I think I just got more and more tied up in knots the more that I went on. And I think that question of, you know, what is that defining feature of recovery? Like, how are we defining it is one that is a question for the agents. <laughs> and it's never like, no matter when I have a conversation with someone, like, I don't feel like we ever really arrive at consensus. And, and I uh, have been involved in some work that's been, you know, trying to find consensus for a while. And then I, I recently have started to question whether consensus is always desirable, who gets left out right. if there's a consensus definition, all of this stuff. Not to say that it's not an interesting, you know, philosophical argument to have, but, you know, if we like we hold kind of contradictory ideas about what recovery might be in terms of you know we see it as an always process but we also see it as an endpoint or a final destination or something that can be objectively measured but when i say recovery is life i kind of just mean like lives are messy and complicated and certain things are going to come up in life that are going to come out of left field and you're never going to know that it's coming and it's going to mess with you and you know if, if one of the things that you do is cope by you know managing quote unquote your body in some way like that's something that might happen in that moment and that doesn't make you less of a person and it may not even detract from you know your ability to live out the rest of your life um so i think when we kind of snap to like the second that you show any signs of quote unquote weakness like you're no longer recovered i think that's really dangerous um and i think it really does a disservice to people in their complexity again like i think you know, there've been moments where I've been more or less well over the past 10 years and does it all count as recovery or were there moments where I wasn't recovered anymore? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. that's a question that I think would depend on how people are reading my experiences, um, which is tricky because we all kind of seem to think we know what's best for somebody in their, in their lives and in their careers and how those all get tangled up together and people kind of expect that recovery is going to look one way. And then if it doesn't look like that for you, there's a kind of um, surveillance that can really happen um, in recovery spaces. Like that doesn't look recovered to me. That doesn't look recovered to me. Well, I mean, look at the world that we live in. Like the world that we live in holds deeply contradictory and confusing ideas about what it means to be healthy. So like, why do we expect that, you know, people in eating disorder recovery won't also, you know, live in relation to health and wellness in different ways at different times, um, depending on what's going on in their lives um, more broadly than that. 
Definitely. And it also feels like we're holding people up to almost different standards as well. So take, for example, um, people who might be um, future psychologists, future social workers, future dietitians, future doctors, future nurses. Um, and we're almost holding them up to, oh, no, you definitely have to fully, fully recover before you're working with people um, or people with eating disorders, perhaps, and, and sometimes both, really. Um, and then yet there's that standard is not put across to um, other people in the, oh, I'll give just one example, um, you know, for example, in, in, uh, for, well, all kind of across all health professionals, it might be, and we expect you to recover from diet culture. We expect you to recover from your internalized fat phobia. We expect you to have invested at least 200 hours in the supervisory uh, or therapeutic uh, environment where you can unpack all your shit in order to then not oh, let that kind that be of cool though. I thing. know it'd be so good. So my point is that we're holding people to different standards. We're not. We're demanding one group of people already vulnerable, already gone through a full-on life experience um, and yet not holding others to do work that can be so harmful left unchecked. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's so tricky, right? Because obviously we want people to be in a well place to be absolutely. doing work that is with people who are not doing well. And I think the conversations that we have about it aren't nearly nuanced enough. And I think that each person is going to have their own unique take and needs and desires and engagement with different things and different practices. And I mean, again, it's our systems don't really make room for that to be a nuanced conversation. There is like often some kind of obje objective criteria that gets put in place. But I mean, basically what you said just really made me think we should have make everybody who does any work with health, like go through a like non-diet or health at every size or whatever informed Thing and you know unpack all of these things within themselves and trauma as well and uh, uh, yeah, preaching to the choir here Andrea I'm yeah, set. so I'm set let's that do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got that curriculum in my head ready to roll mm -hmm. but that also made me think of um, something else which is that I think there's also this assumption that like once you've done that work like you're never gonna feel oh, yeah. like crummy in your own mm -hmm. self again and mm -hmm. and that that somehow like means that you know your recovery isn't valid either and I think it's so important to remember that like this world like really craps all over a lot of bodies um, on the daily. And so of course, sometimes you're still going to feel that in the mud um, and that doesn't necessarily mean anything negative. Like it doesn't, yeah, it's a crappy thing to feel, but it really just means like there's still so much work to be done in the world to make this a better place for people to live in their bodies. Yeah, that's so true. My goodness. Yes, that is absolutely true. And any, any way that we can both individually on a community level and also collectively contribute towards making the world a safer place is going to be doing good work in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one example of that, because I like giving examples, Andrew, you might know this about me. That's good. I like it. I'm not that great at examples. So I really appreciate your aptitude <laughs> my commitment to the concrete uh, it tells you a bit about me actually so um, one example for example one example uh, for 
dietitians or psychologists is um, advocacy through um, communicating with a primary care worker mm -hmm. so whether that's a doctor or a psychiatrist I mean in Australia it's usually a GP is going to be your kind of point um, point person in terms of who gets to um, who gets funding mm -hmm. and who gets to be on different healthcare plans and so forth and as as much as I have, I have deep compassion for GPs because my goodness, they are juggling a million different um, things that they have to do with somebody. And, um, you know, on the other hand, goodness, it's um, the amount of stigmatizing care that the, yeah, is horrific. Um, so, you know, one way that we can advocate is, is making, is making clear in our communication, in our letters, to GPs and help them to be able to understand the the nuanced and, and complex experience of the of the client or the patient that that we both share, and making um, you know giving them for example if they need if they would like some research or they need some you know papers or you know whatever will help them to um, be able to learn how to take care of our our common clients in a better way because the interesting thing is I've met a number of GPs who as a result of my shared work with somebody have then gone and changed their practice with other people too and I'm mm. like well ain't that part of the goal oh, that's, that's so actually good. like spread the love because that's just where it starts. So thinking about how we can collectively do better is so much more than, you know, the individual work that we both do, that we do in our rooms with people. Totally. Yeah. It's, oh, that's amazing that it actually helps with other people's care because I think it's just, you know, once you start doing something, you're like, Oh, actually this like kind of worked. This made sense. Like this made this encounter like so much better. Um, so, you know, how can I import that into other encounters with people? Mm -hmm. So cool. I love your example. I'm very pleased with your concretization of my airy fairy <laughs> ideas too. No, no, no. Oh, I'm all up for airy fairy. I'm all up for, <laughs> you know, going on a million segues and, um, you know, and then I, I quite like the closed circle and give an example. I guess that's Great. the educator in me, right? Is Yeah, I know. My students are always asking for examples and I'm yeah. really working on it. I'm working on it. Well, if you buy me a few coffees, I'm all up for coaching. <laughs> Just across the sea. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Well, this is the beauty of like Zoom, right? It's true. It's Very so true. good. It's so good. So tell us what, what kind of papers and stuff are you jiving on at the moment? So right now, um, I'm trying to move past my dissertation work, trying to get those papers out. Um, there should be one coming soon about how um, we could use films made by people in recovery to educate healthcare providers about differences in recovery. Um, so that's coming out soon. And then I'm working on two kind of deeply theoretical papers about how to support people in recovery and um, how recoveries might be different than we imagine them to be and how we can make space for different types of recovery. So it's along the lines of what we've been talking about. Um, but then I'm also doing a new study on how uh, practitioners talk about recovery with their clients. So um, basically some grad students in the States were like, hey, do you want to work on a qualitative piece with us? We want to, you know, get better at qualitative work. And I was like, sounds amazing. Let's do it. Um, and I'd had this idea um, that they were kind of sharing around. We want to know about you know, how do people talk about recovery or do they at all talk about recovery with their clients and how might that inform 
you know, what recoveries their clients might see as possible. Definitely. Um, so I think that's an interesting question. Obviously, we can only kind of get at, you know, what they're actually saying on, on this level, but I think it would be then interesting to go on and do some work around um, how clients feel that they've been talked to about recovery. And those might go together as an interesting kind of compliment that could lead to some, hopefully, I don't like guidelines and instructions, but some sort of ideas about how we might present recovery in a way that doesn't make it feel inaccessible. Um, yes. That is both hopeful and realistic. Cause I think that's the real dance with recovery is, you know, you don't want to make it out seem like it's sunshine and rainbows because I mean, consistently we know that it's not. Um, but we also want to kind of keep that hope alive. And so I'm really curious to see what clinicians and uh, other practitioners say about how they're managing that tension. So I'm quite excited to dive into that data. Um, and then I have students working on all sorts of interesting stuff, like things around the, what's been come to be known as orthorexia. I have students working on um, social media and eating disorders. Um, I am putting in a grant around eating disorders and technology and recovery and what that means for how we understand and represent recovery. So lots of stuff, lots wow. of stuff on the go. That is and super fascinating. Yeah, I've been, <laughs> yeah, see, the thing is that uh, starting a career is interesting um, because you go from imagining, you know, what are you going to do for a PhD? And then you focus so intently on that for four years to imagining, okay, now I've got this thing that's called a career in front of me. How do I make a program of research that's going to make sense um, and that's going to generate stuff that will make a difference? So I've been really trying to focus in on participatory and collaborative approaches. I'm hoping to do some, you know, photo voice work. So that would be, you know, taking photo or having participants take photos and really work with them around what their meetings are, um, you know, how they're encountering barriers to care. There's just so many things to do and luckily, hopefully lots of time to do it. Um, but I do tend to feel a little bit of urgency around, I want to do it all yesterday because it would be helpful yesterday, mm -hmm. not in 10 years from now. Absolutely. And that's, I imagine, part of the limitations. Well, it's the, it's um, holding that dialectic as well, right? The hope and the <laughs> being realistic. Oh, wow. That's academic life. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've solved your problem. Well, not your problem, your question of life. Perfect. Perfect. See, Excellent. now you can sign off. You're done. <laughs> Great. Done, done, done. Look, it doesn't, yeah, retire and go kayaking at the beach all the time. No. <laughs> oh my goodness. Do you mind if um, we loop back just to one thing? I was thinking as you were talking and I don't, I, I'm not, I'm going to have to go away and process this because it's something new just popped up for me now. You know how um, in, for example, uh, LGBTQI communities, we talk about communities or um, trans communities, and I've, I've learned through people in these communities that, that pluralizing that really encourages us to not have like a, like a, um, a one, one view of how people in these communities um, present in the world and, and how we can work individually as well as being, um, as being thought, thoughtful about the broader experiences. And one thing you were thinking about, because you use the word recovery and then you use the word recoveries. And I was struck when you used the plural mm. because I wonder if this is a way forward, like where the, where we can, open up the 
our understandings of recoveries as a as a plural i don't know it did it just really occurred to me because when you used it in i think i very rarely use it in a plural i use mm. it in a singular and then when you use it in plural something i don't know i'm i'm trying to be more embodied as much as possible and something shifted and i was like that felt good like it was a good kind of shift mm. and I, and i was like oh what was that oh god something else for supervision great add it to the list Ah, I'm so happy that it did because I've been trying to be more intentional about using it in the plural okay. um, to orient to multiple possibilities. Um, so I've been trying to use that in my writing um, and I'm less consistent in using it in my speaking. Um, and I think it's important because I agree, like it just, it can open up different pathways if we see it as multiple um, see them as multiple, I suppose, like see recoveries as non-singular, non-necessarily linear um, options. Because I also think that avoids a certain hierarchization of like, you know, this is not recovery, this is recovery, this is partial recovery. And, and sure, those might be pragmatically helpful definitions if you're working with clients, but I think also just being open to the multiple pathways that recoveries can take. Um, so that's what I've been trying to do. And I think it's hard to actualize um, that multiple pathways thing, because I think we do like kind of like neat solutions or, you know, ability to, again, going back to how we speak with clients about it, like not that I do client work, but how I talk to participants or people in advocacy work about recoveries. Like, I think, there's this real call to offer something. Um, there's a call to offer a certain type of hope or some sort of like, this is a bad metaphor for this, but like a carrot dangling at the end. Yeah. 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 No, I know what you mean. Yeah. You know, um, I think like we want to do that. Um, and I wonder what would happen if we didn't. Um, mm. It could go either way. I mean, I'm not the master of the universe, fortunately. Um, <laughs> but I think it's really interesting, like, which again is why I'm really interested to know. Um, I haven't looked at the data yet, but I'm so fascinated by the way that clinicians orient these things, because as I said, I don't do clinical work. And so I think sometimes I miss some of the pragmatics of what it actually looks like in practice. Mm -hmm. And so I need mm -hmm. people who are clinicians to kind of keep me tethered to reality because I'll tend to like go off and like read a bunch of philosophy and then kind of like think I know something. And then I encounter people who actually do like hands-on on the ground clinical work. And I learn that I actually do nothing. Um, so that's awkward, fun. Awkward, awkward moments. Yeah. But I feel like, I mean, again, I just kind of went in a bit of a circular way, but I've also been trying to be quite deliberate about saying lived experiences um, or as opposed to the lived experience, which is what we often get um, when we talk about, you know, eating disorders. And I really, really want to challenge the idea that there is a lived experience of an eating disorder, because I think that gets us really into some shaky territory that legitimizes certain experiences over others. Yeah. Um, and so definitely I've noticed like myself like trying to like edit myself again and again and again when I say like the lived experience or lived experience of and trying to again pluralize just like I would with recoveries lived experiences yeah oh thank you so much because I was I was actually secretly hoping that you had thought about this so i was being very <laughs> selfish and saying mm, i think i need to go process this but what i actually meant was andrea i really hope that you've thought more than i have and can you please <laughs> tell me more about what you're thinking about 
I've been wrapping myself up into knots doing theory work for the past little bit around just that. So perfect timing. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> I feel very seen. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad. That's awesome. So the next time that we will meet, so we've met in person a number of times already, but the next time we'll meet will be at the International Conference um, for Eating Disorders, which is in June in Sydney in yeah, mid-June. And um, you are a special, very special treat for you and I because we are going to be co-facilitating uh, a workshop with other people as well. It's going to be like a decent-sized panel, which will be so amazing. Um, so... Uh, so aside from that pre-conference workshop, which is really about um, uh, the, the title of it is actually moving past debate about, you know, whether how how we should be helping people most notably in marginalized um, and, and larger bodies. So it's so rather than asking the question, like, should we be helping people to lose weight as part of their recovery? Well, like, our our whole workshop is about why we need to stop asking that question yeah pretty much i'm excited about it it's gonna be good i'm just doing hope i'm hoping to take a, a minimal role and just do more of the here's another brilliant human and <laughs> moderating audience uh questions and stuff like that but i'm super excited because i feel like i've already learned so much from the kind of preparatory conversations we've had it's going to be so fun. And you've got to probably, I, I'm guessing that you've had a number of other things accepted too. So what else are you doing in ICD? Yes, I, I put in a lot of abstracts every year because I've been rejected in the past and uh, I've learned from this that I need to think broadly. So I'm doing two other co-facilitated workshops. Um, one of them uh, is with uh, Carrie Beak and Shadis Turner. Um, and we're talking about um, how social justice practice is evidence-based as well. Um, so basically trying to bring in, you know, everyone says what we need in eating disorders is evidence-based practice and say, yes, okay, evidence-based practice also includes lived experience and clinical expertise. Um, and the lived experience and clinical expertise and particularly lived experiences will speak to the need for um, trauma-informed care, will speak to the need for culturally appropriate care. So we're moving beyond this idea of just accessing an evidence-based treatment toward accessing really like quality, um, hopefully, I mean, ideally in the future, I'd love to see like co-designed, um, lived experiences led type of treatment. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, why do we need to do this and what else can count as evidence? So we'll review some literature, we'll go into like policy, all of this stuff. It's really exciting. Um, and then another workshop is led by Therese Kenny and is with a couple other people as well. And that'll be looking at um, different ways that recovery has been explored in the literature. Um, so looking at qualitative and quantitative and mixed method studies and basically um, what's made possible by looking at measuring and understanding recoveries in different ways. Um, wow. So that will be kind of cool as well. So I'm really excited. It's going to be a busy conference. Um, I just hope that I have time to eat because that is always my bugbear Ooh. at yep. mm -hmm. <laughs> conferences, this conference. this conference in particular. Um, but I'm going to plot out my food plan previously so that I can pack away little snacks. Absolutely. Well, I think that's pretty core to any good conference. If food is not provided, which I've got a question mark over that for this conference, I'm not sure. We, we like to feed our people. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm not too sure about that, but, I, but um, I'll be with you. Definitely with little snack bags. And I'll probably bring cookies because that is my tradition. 
Excellent. Cookies and coffee. Yep. Yep. Home-baked yes. cookies for all. Excellent. Good. Well, I'll have the caramella koalas and you can have the cookies and then we'll go grab some coffee. That sounds good. Um, Now, in terms of where people can find you, now this is one thing that you and I have got lots in common. Um, This is one thing that we do not have in common and that is that you love Twitter. I do love Twitter. Yes. So, so, okay, first of all, tell us where people can find you on Twitter, your Twitter handle. And then second of all, what is it about Twitter that just you are a superstar on Twitter? So tell us a little bit about your Twittering. Uh, I think I just, I'm really introverted and shy and I also like to write things. And um, I find Twitter to be a place where I don't have to be as introverted and shy because I can just put it there and it's my brain but sometimes I get to reserve some of my energy and choose when I can engage. Um, Whereas when I'm just around people, I I find I have to engage. Um, I mean, to a certain degree, I do as well on Twitter. I just like to rant also. Twitter is a great place for ranting. It is. Um, But my Twitter handle is embarrassingly Andrea LALA89. So Andrea Lala89. That's just what I chose in 2009. And uh, I could change it. You can change it but I feel that that would be That's, wrong at no, this point because it's it my is. Twitter identity mm-hmm. and people wouldn't know where to find me. So that's my Twitter and I love Twitter and sometimes I hate Twitter because it can invade other aspects of life and I can get really, you know, engaged in a, a debate. I just have this one memory of uh, my husband and I were on our way to check out our wedding venue and I was having a real argument with someone on Twitter and he just kept asking me questions and I was just on Twitter. And then I was like, Oh no, this is bad. This is, this is not work-life balance. I need to get better about my phone. So I've been much more conscious of my phone use. Excellent. Excellent. I'm sure your husband's happy about that too. He is. Yep. Yep. It's good. (laughs) Great. And then where else do you like to hang out um, where people can find you? Yeah. Um, I'm on Instagram as well, which is just my name, Andrea Lamar. Um, I have Facebook, but I tend to just like not use that as like a public platform. That's more like a, a friends thing. Mm-hmm. So mostly Instagram and Twitter. Um, I do have a website as well, which is again, just www.andrealamar.com. I sometimes put blog posts on there. I haven't lately, um, but I am intending on revitalizing the blog. I do love your blogs. I Thank really, you. really enjoy it. Enjoy them. Yep. Very Thank much you. so. It's a nice place to write um, in a non-academic way. Although it's probably, it's me, so it's probably still a little bit academic, but whatever. Well, there's still a few words I have to Google, but, you know, I forgive you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, I love it. It's um, uh, Lucy Aframore, who I know you're familiar with. I have to do the same with her writing. It is so brilliant. I'm like, yep hegemony what the hell is that and then look it up I'm like oh now I get what that is okay that's a big word that um social scientists and social psychologists use that yeah how else would I know what that word means for example Mm so um Andrea it has been so much fun to speak with you thank you so much my wonderful non-dietitian guest I appreciate you so much (laughs) Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you, you know, going out on a limb and having a, a rogue researcher on. A rogue researcher. You're the best kind of rogue, definitely. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. So are you. <laughs> well, I try, you know. 
how it is. <laughs> um, I really look forward to uh, reconnecting with you in June at ICED. And until then, um, I know you and I are going to be having repeated conversations because of our um, co-facilitation of this workshop. So yes, until then, have a wonderful day and week. Thanks, you too. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.